0: On today's Fit for Purpose, I'm speaking with Peter John. He's the Vice-Chancellor of the University of West London. Peter decided early on in his career to help provide the opportunity of getting to university to people and families who just haven't had that chance before. We talk about the way that UWL works closely with employers locally to make sure its students have the skills and also the experience that they need to get on in the workplace. And as you'll hear, UWL is a career university that's at the centre of connecting up talent with opportunity for the benefit of both graduates and businesses. Peter, obviously it's been an incredibly difficult time for every university because of the COVID lockdown. Um, New autumn term just getting underway. How's the lockdown been for UWL? Tell us about some of the challenges really that you faced over the last few months.
1: Okay well first of all it was um, quite a shock because it came quite quickly Um, and whenever things are done quickly you have to adjust at the same pace. Um, The first thing we had to do was pivot quickly to online uh, because our students needed the last six months um, of teaching. So we pivoted quickly to online um, and we made sure that the students were prioritized in what they were going to learn, what they were going to catch up on, and of course the final examinations. We had to make sure that none of them would be um, well, what I would call um, negatively affected by COVID in terms of their outcomes. So we had to make sure all the new um, rules and regulations were Um, at the same, at the right point. So that was number one. Um, Two, we had to make sure that everything um, we planned for the year had to be kept up, uh, which was quite difficult to do since we weren't now going to be physically located in the university. We had to make sure that everybody had the correct equipment, um, everybody was logged into the university, and every student, if they were particularly um, what they call digitally poor, or Digital Divide had the right equipment to actually work on um, their online. So we made sure everybody was given what they needed in terms of equipment, in terms of time. And last of all, we had to make sure that we were going to make the last term as natural as it could be, even though it was in unnatural circumstances. Um, So we planned to have an online graduation, even though we couldn't do it face to face. We planned to make sure everybody would get their degree certificates at the right time. And we planned to make sure that everybody would be given the opportunity to finish their courses in a way that was as high quality as possible. And all the feedback we got at the end, we asked all the students, um, was that they were very impressed and pleased with the outcomes that they'd had. But it was a difficult time because it was done so abruptly. Um, So we didn't have time to fully plan. So we were planning on the hoof if that doesn't sound too odd.
0: I think think a lot of companies and uh, organisations had to face similar challenges. And I suppose now, looking ahead to the autumn term, how how are you overcoming some of the continued difficulties around not being able to quite go back to business as usual?
1: Right, well, we decided um, about three months ago, it was about June, Um, that we would do something called UWL Flex. And UWL Flex was a strategy that joined up as much face-to-face as possible alongside high-quality online as possible. So they didn't see uh, a split uh, or a divide in the experience they had. Um, And that Flex strategy has taken us through to where we are today. Uh, And the plan today and for next term is that around 70% of teaching will be done face to face. Uh, The rest will be done online. However, if students cannot make a particular seminar or a particular lab session or a particular lecture they need to be in, they will all get both synchronous online provision and also asynchronous so they can catch up on it um, later. So we made sure We gave all our resources into putting that online provision at the highest quality possible. We spent. And do
0: you think, looking ahead, Peter, that actually really improving the online provision of study materials and courses actually will be one of the legacies that does come out of coronavirus that's positive?
1: Well, it's strange. We said recently that um, we should have done this at this level of quality three years ago. And we invested heavily, about half a million maybe more, in developers, and we put every developer in every academic school, so they could all get the um, experience of working with someone with the right expertise. So the quality was consistent right across the subject areas. And those areas were then given support and help and time and resource to make all the online provision as it should be. But one thing, I made sure we're not the Open University. And um, ours was going to be very, very different. It was going to be what we would do if you we were teaching our students face-to-face, but done online as well. So it wasn't the Open University style, it was our style. And we called it UWL Flex. So it is going to be a legacy, we hope. Um, and we've invested in it quite, quite strongly, actually.
0: And and when you look at the new students who will be arriving for a new autumn term, how is it going to be different for them? Normally, they'd be expecting a freshers week, meeting all sorts of people, um, no doubt patronising the uh, student bars as well. It's going to be a bit different this, this time, I presume, Peter.
1: Yes, a little bit different, but we're trying to keep as close as we can to what a student experience would be like so students will come in and we've completely transformed the campuses into safe havens if you like Um, they will be able to get as much socialization as possible they will be able to get as much if you like their natural way of doing things as possible Um, and they will be able to get as many of the experiences that they would expect as possible even though done at a social distance and done not so intensely, but they will all get the experience, but not quite as intense as they would otherwise. Um, And we're determined to give them an experience that they would get close to in normal times.
0: Which I think is really fantastic that that that's what you're you're aiming to do. Now for you, Peter, I mean, obviously, um, I mean, when people are growing up, sometimes they want to I don't know. Be a doctor. Um, I have to say, I didn't necessarily have in my mind. I wanted to be an accountant or a politician. Um, I think I wanted to be in business. But everybody's got an aim. What What was yours when you were growing up in Wales? I think I'm right in saying it. And did you ever expect it that you'd end up being a a vice chancellor?
1: Absolutely not. Um,
0: Tell tell us a little bit about the journey from where you started. Well, I came from a
1: very. Well, I can give you a little anecdote, but that help. I came from a very poor family in South Wales. We lived in a prefab. We didn't have a house even. Um, and I had a very, very seriously old brother. Um, he's three years older than me. He died at eight and I was five. Um, and literacy wasn't the, the big thing in our family. It was just survival. And because he was dying, they had to bring a teacher into the house because of the 1945 Education Act. And Mm -hmm. so I sat on the table when he was being taught to read, and I learned to read um, by the time I was three. And then I was pushed off to nursery because we couldn't look after a dying child at home. Um, And from that, I got the 11 plus grammar school and so on and so forth. So um, my main aim at that age was just to carry on as best I could because all the attention was put on my brother because he was at our attention every minute of the day because he could die quite easily so I was sort of left to do things on my own I suppose.
0: Which is I suppose understandable by the sounds of it given the circumstances and do you feel like it very much made you somebody who was self-reliant in a way because you'd always had to you know in, in a sense make sure you took your own decisions and and really you had to I suppose even as a very small child take on board the fact that for your family unit, your brother was always going to be something that people were really focused on.
1: Of course, and it made me a bit self-reliant. I went to grammar school 12 miles away every day and, and so on. So that was the way it was, um, and I had no other choice. And in South Wales at the time, it was a pretty dark period back in the, the 50s and 60s, and um, I was made self-reliant. and um, I had no expectations on me, though, to succeed, which was a good thing. No expectations at all. Um, uh, because I was the only one that had ever done anything um, or was likely to do anything um, because I come from a mining family. Um, i lost my uncle, his neck broken in the pit when he was 21 and so on and so forth. So I came from that kind of background, although there was one important thing. Um, South Wales miners had a very strong sense of autodidact, self-taught, and there was always a feeling that inside the communities that um, education mattered, but not necessarily formal education mattered. Mm -hmm.
0: And when did you first start to think that maybe a career in education was something that would be the path that you were going to go down?
1: Well, after university, I I decided I had a scholarship to do a PhD after I did my degree and I decided um, I wanted to teach children who were in trouble and I went to work in what was then called a community home school. They were the ex-Borstals, the ex-prison schools and I went to work in one of those um, and I had, to st- I had to live in with the students as well as teach them and it was almost impossible to, to explain what it was like to teach those children. And What age would
0: you have been then Peter?
1: 21 <laughs> yeah, so,
0: so a very young adult yourself, but, but very, very difficult incredibly difficult um, young people.
1: Yeah, it was almost impossible to live with them. I mean, read about their backgrounds, which were absolutely, desperately bad um, in terms of what had happened to them, and then try and teach them at the same time. And I found it too difficult. So um, I decided to go back into academia then and then worked at what was then Oxford Polytechnic now Oxford Brooks. Then I went to the University of Reading, and then from the University of Reading to the University of Bristol, where I stayed for about 16 years, and then moved to University of Plymouth. Um, And that was mainly lecturing, lecturing. I became um, a reader at Bristol. Then I got a chair in Plymouth. Um, And then from Plymouth, out of the blue, in three years, I went from being a Dean to being a VC
0: within three years. That sounds like a bit of a meteoric rise. And tell us a little bit about what you've brought into the University of West London and and in a sense, your ethos for how you wanted it to work, not just in terms of the students and the area that it's based in, but also how staff and, and how students have worked with businesses, local businesses, big and small. It's very, I think it's very interesting to to see some of the work that you've done as, a, as a, an institution on the, both of those areas?
1: Okay, well, the first thing I realised when I moved out of the Russell Group um, into the new university sector was how different it was. Um, different construction of a curriculum, different students, and different kind of um, possible ambitions they might have. Um, I was struck by the low level of ambition sometimes, um, both at Plymouth, but mostly at at West London, how difficult it was. So I decided very, very early on to concentrate on those students, what their needs were and what their desires were and what they wanted. And most of them wanted, they wanted their families to be proud of them. They wanted their families to be well looked after and they wanted the opportunities that other people took for granted. Um, And I built the curriculum around that over the five-year period to make sure that these students could not only um, succeed in the way they wanted to, but their families in the next generation could succeed as well. And that, if you like, made me move the university towards a more enterprising career-based university because in the end, um, these students don't have anything to fall back on. Um, and they have to make it for themselves a bit like I did, in a funny kind of way, and I felt an affinity with them, I understood them, I could speak to them, and they understood me, and I think that's the way I designed how the University of West London would continue.
0: I think it's really interesting because I remember when I was going to university, I was also the first person in my family to go, and. At the time, I genuinely thought through the fact that it would be three years later that I would start earning a salary and that there was a trade off between working three years earlier and having maybe a lower salary after that um, or delaying that by three years, which seemed like quite a lot of money if you sort of added up what I might have earned over those three years but then having a career and of course now when I look back on it it was a complete no-brainer to go to university, I mean it transformed my life, it widened up, widened out my opportunities beyond anything I could have imagined but I think it, it's just worth remembering isn't it that you know young people are going there for a reason and the reason is not just to learn but to make sure they can then get connected up with something afterwards, an opportunity and so really what they want particularly i I guess in place a place like UWL is is to understand that 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 chance of being able to translate a degree into an opportunity afterwards is is really as high as it possibly can be and and that's something you've really worked hard on isn't it Peter?
1: Absolutely right and um the one thing that as i've said did strike me was the sort of lack of real ambition you had to really explain to them what the world was like out there what you could get what the possibilities are where you could go um, because too often they've been constrained by their environment and understandably so and so you had to spend so much time opening up the possibilities for them but there's nothing worse than opening up possibilities and there aren't any at the end of it so we mm-hmm. had to make sure there are things for them that they could move into hence we started this idea of every student whatever work placement guaranteed in the university whenever they're there they will get a guaranteed one and that starts to put the stepping stones into place so they can move from that into their ambition, into where they want to go. Because many of them don't have a very clear idea of what they want to do or where they want to go when they're young. And they don't have the networks and the connections that so many people do and take for granted. So you had to create them for them. And the only way you could do it was to get around 6,000 employers to offer work placements. And that took a lot of effort. But once that was done, they started to take advantage of it. And now they write back to me and explain to me what's happened and so on. And you realise that you've given them a stepping stone into something that they never dreamed of or possibly thought they could ever get into. While so many take that for granted.
0: And what about the employers? I mean, obviously, for them, this is a chance to get connected up with a, a, a pipeline of talent, really, that UWL is producing consistently year on year.
1: Now, the employers were interesting. At the start, they were a little bit sceptical. Some of them felt a little bit um, negative about having to provide, which we asked them to, a work placement. It took a lot of persuasion, took a lot of time, a lot of effort, um, and so on. But many of them were very suspicious until they saw the students and they saw how willing they were to put the effort into things and how clear they were in what they wanted to achieve and how they would, work hard rather than just expect things to happen. But it took a lot of persuasion, believe me, an, an awful lot of time to get those employers on board. And many of them, many of the students now work for them. Um, and so that was that was a really positive move. But it took an awful lot of persuasion, an awful lot of time and an awful lot of effort.
0: I and mean, it feels like in a way the challenge was creating this virtuous circle where you had these great students but they needed an opportunity the employers really needed to work through how they could give good quality work placements but almost once they got through that process they then began to reap the rewards the fact that actually they had got a, a fantastic soon-to-be graduate um, or student and and so it wasn't a one-way street at all of just the student getting experience, actually the employers must have steadily also realised that they were going to get a huge amount out of this themselves.
1: Absolutely right, it was a two-way street, um, but as I said it took time to get that two-way street working because there was scepticism. Um, were these students up to it? They, they weren't the typical students that you'd find, they were perhaps um, coming from different backgrounds, BTEC backgrounds, they A-level grades weren't as high as others, they come from different environments. The ethnicity was quite widespread. Um, a lot of them were working class as well and had and difficulty. So they often had to be persuaded to do it. But when they realized the pipeline that they got part of could give them quality graduates that did what they wanted them to do, they were almost oven ready. It sounds an awful term, but I think you know <laughs> what I mean. It's, it, I mean,
0: I, I think the, the other thing that really struck me was um, the way in which UWL brought employers and businesses into helping ensure the courses themselves were as um, opportunity friendly, if I can put it that way, um, as possible. And so rather than almost just hoping that the curriculum and the course would connect up with, a, with an opportunity in a sector, for example, much more thought around how employers could be fundamentally involved in helping to design the courses in the first place so that they were always going to be as close as as they could be to to producing young people that the employers really needed.
1: Yes um, and if you look at our our staff ratios at least a third, at least a third have come directly from the industry or background that we'd expect them to come from Um, and we also employ them um, as part of a contract with the employer that they come in and teach and then of course they teach when they're in situ as well so I would say at least half of the staff uh, in different ways are those who are actually doing the job currently so that students are getting first-hand experience they can see it and they can see and understand it and they can do it rather than read through it theoretically which they have to but they can actually see it in action as well and that's a big advantage um, in having staff from commerce come in and help design, and help teach, and help assess the curriculum, rather than just it be some kind of name attached to a course. Um, mm-hmm. You didn't say it's for real. That's the word they use. It's for real.
0: And how, tell us a bit about how you work with local FE colleges, because of course a lot of what you do. Um, is vocational and and it it links up with local employers. Um, But I think you've got particular FE specialisms in a way, haven't you, within the university itself?
1: Yeah, we, well, believe it or not, when I arrived in 2007, late 2007, we had an FE college um, within the university. Um, Reading College was part of the university, but I'm sorry to say the FE merger, as it was called, or acquisition, failed. Um, I won't go into the reasons because it's too complicated, but it failed. So what we had instead was um FE within the university. So we had an FE college set within it mm-hmm. um, and we decided that was better than trying to work like federated or merged with a large FE college. So we decided to put one in the middle of the university Um, and we funded it as best we could, Uh, and it still operates now for our apprenticeships, it still operates now for degrees as well, Um, and it got the top Ofsted rating twice, so um, we decided to put it at the heart of the university rather than have it attached, which it was and failed.
0: Well congratulations on all of that work, I mean obviously taken as a whole it's really getting more widely recognised, UWL shot up the rankings on the Guardian um, University rankings. I think that's right to say, Peter, this year?
1: Yes, we went up to 34, uh, which is our best ranking ever. We were in the 50s anyway, um, but five years ago, um, we were 122 um, in the Sunday Times and roughly in the Guardian also. Um, So
0: that's a a transformed ranking, really, um, in in just a few years then.
1: Yeah, we've done it by what someone told me many years ago. You must must ruthlessly prioritise when you're in a modern university. You can't do everything. You have to prioritise. And we prioritised a number of very clear areas that we would work on. One was making sure that the students' employability was very, very high. Two, their student experience would be top top, top quality, Um, and we get massively high NSS scores up in the 80s for London, which is extremely high. No one does any better. Um, The student experience, employability, continuation, so they stay on and they complete rather than drop off and leave. Mm -hmm. And we really, really emphasize that all the students have that that guaranteed um, work placement as well. So when you prioritize all that and you put it together, league tables take care of themselves
0: <laughs> and obviously the students themselves um, seem to have responded um, really well to the focus on student experience what are some of the things you feel that UWL have done on student experience that have been the, the most powerful in a sense that have worked worked the best
1: okay well, there's a few things well number one work closely always with the student union don't see the student union as the enemy, the student union is your friend and we work closely, we're almost fully integrated with the student union and they've won student union of the year twice um, in the UK um, and they get some of the best results um, of all. So we work very closely with the student union. If you don't, you won't get the student experience right. That's number one. Number two, we've used learning analytics, of course, to highlight and point out where the weaknesses are because we know there are students who will struggle because of their background. They will possibly leave. They have family background. And so we've been able to pinpoint those through learning analytics and Civitas. We've learned to pinpoint them. We've got full engagement team. Anybody who's in trouble, financially, socially, family-wise, they all get a tutor assigned to them and you work. we work with them closely. So they stay on board. So that's number two. Uh, why we get such a good uh, experience. And number three is our curriculum is so aligned with what they're going to do in the future, they don't feel there's a disconnect between their chosen career or chosen area of career and what they do in the university. Um, so the high quality teaching um, is given to them from outside and inside. Uh, and then the students respond as they do and give us some of the best, we well, the best in England, fourth or fifth best in the UK. Um, And that's in London, remember. And in London, it's very, very, very hard to get strong NSS scores. Ask Imperial College and ask the LSE that question.
0: Well, it it sounds like um, this combination of different steps you're taking, the fact that it it all adds up to almost a self-reinforcing model where the students are incredibly Um, bolted into how the university works which is what they prefer it means that you can then design smarter courses and then link in businesses and so by the end of it you've got all these different stakeholders but all pulling in the same direction and presumably for the local community and the local economy I mean it's absolutely vital because there are opportunities on the doorstep but you're really enabling a lot of more local young people to be able to take advantage of them
1: Absolutely, and um, every year we, we use Oxford. I think it's Oxford Economics. I can't remember uh, to do a study of how much we contribute to the local economy, and it comes out at massive numbers um, of just the, the the actual contribution to the economy, as well as the employment opportunities as well that we provide, and we provide for people in the community, but also for people to work in the community, and we do that both in Hounslow and we do that, of course, in Ealing in West London. So we do it in both. And we are fortunate in having some of the um, biggest and best employers in the UK in the area. Heathrow is one of our partners, for instance, and that gives us huge advantages for our airline and airport um, logistics courses. We train pilots, for example, we do airline logistics, we do airport management and so on. So we're lucky to have such big, big and supportive employers as well. So um, we put as much into the community as we as we take out of the community in terms of working with employers. So, um, yeah, it, we're lucky in many ways to have two. Hounslow, remember, is the 14th biggest economic unit in the UK. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> so, I, I didn't, I, I wasn't aware of that statistic. It's, it's a but massive I mean, it's massive powerful. economy. It's
1: bigger than, bigger than Wales, I think i GDP sure Wales values.
0: might have something to say
1: about that Yeah, but in terms of GDP value, it's, it's very, very high um, So, we, because it's big employers, yeah. you know, it's, it's, got, it's got GSK, it's got Heathrow and so on There are big employers and I fear, I'm sorry to say this, I fear for the next two years after Brexit that things could turn rather nasty um, and it might limit some of the opportunities for our students in particular
0: and do you feel like that's the, you know, one of the principal challenges that you now face as a, as a university is really this, the wider economy, how well that does, um, how it particularly impacts the, the more local West London economy. Those are some of the, the issues that, that really will affect the employers, the, the opportunities for your students in the coming years.
1: Yes, I mean, that's the biggest worry I've got is that shrinkage is already occurring. Um, in the hospitality sector, for example, the service sector, the airline and airport sector, the events sector, i could go on. Um, lots and lots of these are contracting rapidly. And next year is going to be difficult to provide um, the opportunities that we've been providing over the last eight to ten years. And that worries me terribly because in the end, it's our students that will suffer because um, those areas just aren't going to recruit, they just are going to contract. And that's very difficult then to work with an economy that's going backwards. Although I hope in some form or other, we can actually help the economy move forwards. Um, if, if government and universities work together and local authorities work together and the London mayor works with us, I'm sure we can help the economy move forward in ways that are new and different um, if need be, but it's, it is a worry.
0: And there's no doubt that, in a sense, education's at the heart of how you do the shift that we need, which is to move from a, a lower skill, lower salary, lower productivity economy to the high salary, you know, great career, high productivity economy. And I think, in a sense, um, the key is to have universities like UWL continuing to be able to turn out young people who are at a much better stage of their education and, and much better educated than they otherwise would have been to be able to then support an economy that steadily transitions, transitions maybe from where it's been um to where it's going to be in the the coming years but i mean the, the biggest tragedy really would be to steadily get the economy back on its feet but then not have the young people and the talent pipeline there to be able to take advantage of it when that finally happens
1: yeah that's a big worry um... I just hope that um, the universities can come to a, a good rapprochement with, with local authorities and governments um, and regional governments to try and use both to their full capacity because a recovery won't just happen. Um, it can be made to happen. And universities like ours are there to help that recovery happen. And I'm unashamed about it. I think it's really, really important. I'm also unashamed about the fact that we have done well in terms of our ranking and our development, um, uh, I think that's really, really important because I don't want our students to feel because they're in new university sector, the post-92 sector, um, that somehow you are, your life is set according to what they provide. Uh, that's why I've always been determined um, for us to compete as best we can um, with the better universities, as they called, or the more wealthy universities or the more research-intensive universities, we have to compete with them. And I really want our students to feel they can compete and they can feel um, equally emboldened by that. Um, but it's got to be a really interesting rapprochement, as I said, between government, local government, regional government um, and university to get the economy back to where, not just to where it was, because it just needs to go somewhere different, as you say, to higher value jobs. We can't have jobs just down, you know, in service sector, coffee shop jobs, and so on. Are not where the economy should be, and uh, I'm determined that we won't make it that way. And
0: the and the university can be part of how we transition up, not only skills, but but also in time, um, employers as well. I think it's a really important time and I think it's really important to have these different parts of the solution all working in concert. In other words, the universities and colleges, um, employers, um, local communities and then government. It's when everyone's pulling in the same direction around, you know, the same mission, if you like, that I think you really start to get some some progress on the ground and some innovation. You know, government isn't going to have all the answers a lot of them will lie locally in terms of what's really going to work for the local economy and the key to success is really enabling those that local tailoring of solutions I think um, to work for for individual communities you know, I think you know from your own journey you know which mirrors mine very much coming from a working class background you know not necessarily having a a major life plan other than getting educated and, and some ideas about what might have been good to do. Um, I think it must be really inspiring to young people at the university to, to know that it's being led by someone who fundamentally has traveled exactly the same road. But if you, if you now, Peter, were talking to little Peter all those years ago <laughs> and giving yourself some <laughs> advice, um, knowing what you know now, what, what advice would you be giving to, to, to your younger self, do you think?
1: I'd probably say um, be self-reliant, make the opportunities happen, um, because they will, and put yourself in the right place so those opportunities can take place. You will get them in life, but most people, sadly, are unable to take them, because They're too old, they're too this, they can't do that, their families are there, they can't. There's various reasons why. Get yourself in the best place to take advantage of those opportunities. Um, And that's not necessarily about planning too much, it's just about doing everything well and everything as best you can. And then when the opportunities come, you'll get them.
0: Mm. I'd, I'd wholeheartedly agree with that. Peter, it's been fantastic having you on the podcast. Congratulations about rising up the rankings um, for the Guardian University rankings. Uh, I know how much hard work has gone into that, both from yourself, um, staff and also students and businesses locally, so congratulations on that. Uh, I think it's a, a fantastic story and I'm looking forward to seeing you continue to rise up the rankings and uh, very much looking forward to the Opportunity Action Plan that we've been working on together over the last few months.
1: You are too kind.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much Thanks Peter. very
1: much Justine, so bye-bye!
0: What Peter's has managed to achieve as Vice-Chancellor has really been quite something and it's been reflected in a stratospheric rise for UWL in the university league tables over the past few years. I think it goes to show that if as a leader you decide to make improving social mobility a priority for your organisation, you'll be making not just a difference to the countless people who you teach if you're UWL or employ or work with, but in a wider world that wants to see wider priorities on levelling up reflected in how public and the private sector runs, you and your organisation will benefit as well. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fit for Purpose. If you enjoyed it, please give us a rating and share with your friends, family and colleagues. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes.